Tonight we're looking at chapter 4 of our study of knowing God. And this chapter is focused on the only true God and revolves around the idea of idolatry and focuses on the meaning and application of the second commandment. And so he asks in the opening, what, is, what comes to your mind when you think of idolatry? Do you think of you know, a Hindu temple with statues? Do you think of uh, you know, ancient Near Eastern Babylonians bowing down uh, before statues? Or even in the Old Testament, the way it's described sometimes of, of even the detestable practices of the Canaanites and these false religions, even to the point of a despicable practice such as child sacrifice. Uh, so what comes to our mind when we think of idolatry? And he says, uh, we ought to not only think about the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me, but we should also think about the second commandment, which says in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so what is that commandment referring to? A lot of people think that this commandment is essentially uh, giving further explanation or detail on the first commandment. The first commandment says, no other gods before me. And some think this is talking about uh, then more details about that first commandment. In fact, in, I believe, the Roman Catholic numbering of the commandments, one and two are joined together as a single command. So some think that it has to do with uh, more specifics of the first commandment. So it has to do with other gods. But he points out in the chapter that it's not just about other gods. In fact, the second commandment prohibits all images, all idols, even if intended to worship the one true God. So not only is it talking about, okay, you can't bow down to to Baal or to Ashtoreth or any of these other false Canaanite gods, but also in your attempt to worship the Lord your God, you shall not make any graven images, any likenesses of anything. If you, if you read carefully the uh, golden calf incident in Exodus chapter 32, you'll notice there that at one point it says that Aaron made the calf and, and then they engaged in worship to the Lord using the divine name of God, Yahweh. So they were using the golden calf not to worship gods in general, but they were using it as a means to worship Yahweh, the God who had delivered them. And God was furious with them because that was a violation of the second commandment. And so he quotes from Charles Hodge and he says, idolatry consists not only in the worship of false gods, but also in the worship of the true God by images. And so there are some dangers that come to us with the use of images. One of the things he reminds us of is that images are not a matter of personal taste or preference or whether or not they are helpful. 
So some might say, well, I like to have this crucifix because it helps me worship Jesus. Or I like to have this statue or this picture of Jesus because it helps me to worship Jesus. Or it feels more worshipful. He says it's not a matter of taste or preference or what we even regard as helpful. The ancient Israelites, when they made the golden calf, were probably thinking it would be helpful to them to worship God if they had something visible that they could see. So it's not a matter of what we like or what is helpful. The Bible forbids the use of images in the worship of the one true God. So what ought to drive us in our worship then is not personal taste or preference or what we find as useful, but what the Bible reveals. The Bible reveals how we ought to worship God. And so no statues, images, pictures of God or even of Christ are to be used in worship, public or private. Why such a strong prohibition against the use of images? A couple of really important reasons. One is because images dishonor God, for they obscure his glory. Any image of God, or even of Christ, that you will try to come up with will not be able to capture the full picture and the full glory of who God is. So any image is going to diminish the, the glory of God. Because any image, any likeness, picture, icon, whatever it is, is going to, by necessity, by definition, have to be fashioned around something that is made. Right? Something in God's creation. An animal, a star, even a human being, whatever it is, something is going to be represented in creation by that statue. And that's why Paul says in Romans 1 that instead of worshiping the creator, they worship that which was created. So any kind of image that we come up with is going to have elements of creation in it. But there's a distinction, isn't there, between the creator and the created? There's an essential necessary distinction between the creator and the created. And so whatever we come up with in the created world to try to remind us of God or image God or help us in our worship of God is going to fall desperately short. Because God is infinitely glorious, so far high and above anything that he has made in his world. In the chapter he quotes from John Calvin who says, A true image of God is not to be found in all the world. And hence, his glory is defiled and his truth corrupted by the lie whenever he is set before our eyes in a visible form. Therefore, to devise any image of God is itself impious or ungodly, because by this corruption, his majesty is adulterated and he is figured to be other than he is. So nothing in creation can capture the full glory of God. Which is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, verse 18, To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? The implied answer is none. There's nothing in creation to which you can compare God. So any attempt to image God or use something to image God is going to be illegitimate and fall very short. 
So that's one reason why images are dangerous, because it obscures the glory of God. But the second reason he gives us in the chapter is that images mislead us, for they convey false ideas about God. Images mislead us because they convey false ideas about God. And one of the things he says in this context is he uses the example of a crucifix. A crucifix, which is popular in the Roman Catholic faith, what does the crucifix show? A crucifix shows, uh, it's an image of Jesus hanging on the cross. Which, here is the problem. A couple of problems. But one, one, we don't know what Jesus looked like. But an even greater problem than that is that that doesn't give us the full picture of who Jesus is and what he has done, does it? So that one image, it starts to capture our attention and it starts to capture all of our focus and we lose sight of all the rest of Christ and his glory. So we lose sight of his incarnation and his birth in Bethlehem. We lose sight of his miracles and his compassion that he showed to people. We lose sight of his resurrection from the grave. We lose sight of his ascension to the right hand of the throne of the Father where he rules as king forever and ever. We lose sight of the fact that even before he became a man, the eternal word has always been God and existed for all time. So whenever we try to shrink God down, even Christ down to an image, we are only getting part of the picture. And in that sense, it's partial truth, which is misleading. So these images, they convey false ideas about God. And then to even use a more in-your-face example, think about the golden calf in Exodus 32. That, that golden calf is a complete lie of who God is. How in any way can that calf represent anything about God? Uh, let's, let's say it, it was even a, a bull, okay? A, a large, powerful, strong bull. Okay, maybe it exemplifies the strength of God. But that's it. What about the rest? What about the rest of who God is? It's, it's misleading. It's a lie. And then where he really gets into, I think, the, what's really a very strong application of the message of this chapter is he wants us to move from physical objects or pictures to our minds. Because for most of us in conservative evangelical churches, we don't have statues or images of God or of Christ that we use for the purposes of worship. But we, it is very easy for us to set up false ideas or false notions of who God is in our minds and allow those false images or notions to shape our worship of God. And so he says, imagining God in our heads can be just as real a breach of the second commandment as imagining him by the work of our hands. What's, all it is, is you're going from the step of thinking about it to the step of fashioning it into something that you can see. But it all begins with a false idea about God, doesn't it? It begins with a false idea about God. And I think I've mentioned this before at different times in sermons that have dealt with the idea of false worship or idolatry. But 
Sometimes as moderns, we wonder, what was the draw? You know, what, what was the great appeal of these pagan gods to the Israelites that, that you read through the whole history of Israel, and it seems like every time you turn around, every page you turn, they're falling into idolatry again. What was the great draw of that? For us, it seems so foreign. It seems so odd that a physical object of an image of a god would have that much of a temptation or an appeal. But it's much deeper than that, because that god, that image, represented something else. And essentially what it represented was a theology. It represented a theology about the divine, about God. And so to bow down or to offer a sacrifice to worship Baal was to have a certain conception about the divine, about who God was or what God did. And the way most of the ancient Near Eastern religions work is they thought that you had to appease the gods and try to basically bend the gods to your will to earn their favor and to get them to do what you wanted them to do. So they would go through all these rituals and they would do all these harsh things, even to the extent of offering their children as sacrifices to try to appease the gods so that these gods would give them what they wanted and they would bless them. And so they would pray and sacrifice and and worship Baal so they would get rain, so their crops would grow, so that their families would grow and flourish. Baal was the god of fertility. He was the the lord of uh, things growing and producing. So what really then became the God was we want to get richer. We want to be comforted. We want to have everything that our soul desires. We want to have large crops. We want to be provided for. We want to have large families. We want to become powerful. Whatever it is, that's what that God represented. Well, here's the thing. We still have all of those things today, don't we? We may not have the little statue of Baal or, or of these ancient Greek gods, Zeus or whatever, but we still have the concepts that those gods represented. So we still worship lust in our day. We still worship power. We still worship money. We still worship comfort and ease. We still worship fill in the blank. And those ancient gods represented all those things. So we wonder what was the appeal? What's the same appeal that appeals to us today? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And those images represented those false notions of God. So we can come up with false notions of God even today, even if we don't have the physical image to go with it. And so he asks, how often do we hear things like, I like to think of God as, or I don't think God is like this. I don't think God would do that. And I could probably, we could probably fill in some statements from our modern thinking of who God is. I like to think of God as, what's the first word that comes to your mind from our world? Love. That's what came to my mind. And, and for our current world, our current conception, if they believe in God at all, their concept of God is one that is completely fully of love, But again, what definition of love? Theirs. 
their definition of love is God accepts everyone. God doesn't judge anyone. God doesn't hold anybody accountable for everything. God loves everybody the same, and everybody's welcome. Everybody's included. God's tolerant of everybody and everything, and God doesn't punish sin. There's no eternal judgment. God would never send anybody to hell. God is all love. And so I don't think God, second statement, I don't think God would send people to hell. I don't think God would judge people. So our world is full of all kinds of false mental images of who God is. And even we as Christians can fall into that at times too. And he says in the chapter that often remarks of this kind serve as the prelude to a denial of something that the Bible tells us about God. So I like to think of God as well, get ready for somebody to shrink God down to their image of who they want God to be. Or I don't think God would do get ready for somebody to shrink God down to their picture of what they think God is. So he says, those who hold themselves free to think of God as they like are breaking the second commandment. We were made in his image but we must not think of him as existing in ours. But that's what we tend to do. We tend to think of God in the image that we want him to be. So we end up fashioning God after our image instead of the way that the Bible actually says we were fashioned after God's image. And when we have these false conceptions of God, even just mental ones, without making a physical image, we're still violating the essence of the second commandment. So what is the purpose then of the second commandment? He says, negatively, the second commandment is a warning against ways of worship and religious practice that lead us to dishonor God and to falsify his truth. So it's a, it's a warning. Negatively, it's a warning to not worship God in a way that is, that is dishonoring to him, that goes against what he has told us. But positively... The second commandment is a summons to us to recognize that God the creator is transcendent, that he is mysterious, that he is inscrutable, that he is beyond the rage, range of any imagining or philosophical guesswork of which we are capable. And he goes on to say then that should lead us to humility. So negatively, it warns us against false pictures, images of God, and falsifying his word. Positively, it draws us into the true worship of God to see him for the almighty, transcendent, glorious being that he is. And so Isaiah says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And Paul saying in Romans, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So then he starts to ask the question, okay, if it's possible for us to get false mental images or ideas of who God is? How do we guard against that? How then should we think of God? And the answer is in the way that God has showed us. God is, God is hidden. He is invisible. 
He's the invisible God. John 1.18, no one's ever seen God. So the only way for us to know God and to worship him as the God that he is, is to receive humbly and willingly what he reveals to us about himself. And he reveals certain things about himself and his creation, but fundamentally, most importantly, he reveals himself through his word and his son. So, in other words, our thinking, our, our worship of God should be shaped not by the world, not by its philosophies, not what we would want, but shaped by the word, by what he has told us about who he is. And so he says, through this revelation, which is made available to us in Holy Scripture, we may form a true notion of God. Without it, we never can. Thus, it appears that the positive force of the second commandment is that it compels us to take our thoughts of God from his own holy word and from no other source whatsoever. It's interesting, he brings in Deuteronomy 4. And in Deuteronomy 4, Moses is recounting to the Israelites the incident that took place at Mount Sinai. And he says, remember when God came to meet with us at Mount Sinai? He says, you saw no form, but you heard his voice. So the way that God has given to us to worship him is not by seeing him, but by listening to him. So we saw no form, Moses said. God didn't reveal himself to us in a visible way, no form, no image, no body, but he did speak to us, and we heard his voice. And we still have the words of God, don't we? So our mind of our thinking of who God is needs to still be shaped by what God has said. He says, the mind that takes up with images, whether real or just mental, is a mind that has not yet learned to love and attend to God's word. Those who look to man-made images material or mental, to lead them to God, are not likely to take any part of his revelation as seriously as they should. And that fits with the modern concepts that we see of God in the world. Because they're shaped more by modern philosophy and modern sentimentality than they are than by what the scriptures say. So this concept, this modern concept of God is love and there's no judgment in God, that's not a biblical concept, that's their own making. But if they would come to the scriptures and learn who God is, their thinking would be shaped and corrected by the revelation of God's word. But they don't spend time in God's word to sit and learn and know who God is, so they come up with false perceptions of who God is. And we also live in a time where people are free to pick and choose little tidbits of what they want, right? So they'll come and they'll pick this little part out of the Bible and this little part, and they'll, they'll come up with their own conglomeration of what they think God is like. But again, we have to take the whole picture of who God is. God did not show them, that is the Israelites, a visible symbol of himself, but he spoke to them. Therefore, they are not now to seek visible symbols of God, but simply to obey his word. And that still applies to us. We don't need to be seeking visible symbols of God, but we need to attend to his word. So then, in conclusion, he says, 
looking to the true God, how far are we keeping the second commandment? Are we sure that the God whom we seek to worship is the God of the Bible, the triune Jehovah? Do we worship the one true God in truth? So that's just a soul-searching question. What, what God am I seeking to worship? Is it the God who has spoken and who has revealed himself to us and we listen and we obey and we trust that word and that's the God that we worship? Or are we worshiping a God of our own making, of our own imagining? And then he asked the question, how can I tell if I'm worshiping the one true God? in the way that the scriptures reveal. Well, one test is the God of the Bible has spoken in his son. The light of the knowledge of his glory is given to us in the face of Jesus Christ. And so do I look habitually to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as showing me the final truth about the nature and the grace of God? Do I see all the purposes of God as centering upon him? So am I worshiping the one true God? Am I worshiping Christ, the one whom he has sent, and the one who is the ultimate revelation of God to us? As Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, at various times and in sundry places, God has spoken to us through the prophets, through angels, through various means. But now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, the Lord Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things. Jesus is the ultimate and final revelation of God. And so John 17, 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I think for us, the primary application of this chapter is and again, the whole purpose of this book is for us to know God. To not know him in an academic way or just facts and truths, but to know God. To know him as he is, relationally, as the creator of the world, as our father. And I think one of the, 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 the dangers that we face, especially in our world today, is we are bombarded with all kinds of philosophies and different ideas about what is right, about what is wrong, about whether or not there is a God, and if there is a God, what that God should look like. And we're constantly bombarded by those messages. And it's kind of like swimming in a, in a pool. Your, your body gets, to, gets used to that temperature. Uh, like at the beginning, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and we're always looking forward to the very beginning of the swimming season. So... Uh, you know, as soon as it gets warm enough for you to jump in that pool, and there were times when we jumped in there when it was still pretty cold. And you first jump in, and you're cold, and you're shivering, but you start swimming around a little bit, it's not too bad. It feels pretty comfortable. That's, can, that's what can happen to us in our world if we're not careful, because we're, we're swimming in it all the time. And when we first encounter some of these false ideas and, and philosophies in the world, it shocks us. But then the more that you swim in it and the more that you're around it, it just starts to desensitize us and we just kind of get used to it. And if we're not careful, we just let it come in unguardedly. And it shapes our thinking. It shapes um, 
how we think. It shapes how we worship. Which is why we have such a problem in the church today of a consumer mindset. We have a consumer mindset of church and worship, of coming to God on my terms. And so people check out churches like they check out stores or like they go to look at a house that they might buy. And so they go around, oh, I like that kitchen. I don't like that tile. You know, I don't, so I'm not going to buy this house. That's how they approach church. It's like they come to church, well, I, I like the seats, but I don't like the preacher. Or, I, you know, I like the songs, but I don't like the Sunday school class. And they start to measure these things and they start to make a decision as if they're buying a car or buying a house. But the scriptures tell us that we come to church for God. And he is the center of our, our vision, our worship. Well, we live in a very consumeristic culture. And everything in our culture is about marketing. It's, it's all around us. And so we think, well, I need to approach church that same way too. And there are even books on Christian bookshelves that say that's how you should plant a church. You should adopt a business model. And that's how you reach people. By, by appealing to their, you know, their niche, their, their thing that they like to do. And that's not the biblical conception of worshiping God. So we have to be on guard against all these false ideas and thoughts that are out there.